let's go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 43. We're going to begin with verse 11 and go all the way through 45, 15, which leaves, um, I think, four, four chapters to cover next time. I want to finish. I'm hoping to finish. I may not be able to finish, but I'd like to finish <laughs> Genesis by Christmas so that when we come back in the new year, can you believe it's going to be 2019? Wow that we would start on the book of Exodus. That's my plan. So we'll see if I can cover four chapters in one hour, one hour and a half, you know, whatever it is <laughs> next time. What? <laughs> well, lately it's been, mm, all right, we won't go there. All right. Once jo uh, Jacob's family had eaten through all of the grain, the life-giving grain that they had purchased on their first trip, to Egypt, the sons of Jacob had purchased from him. Um, they didn't know he was Joseph, of course, did they? To, to them, he was the Lord of Egypt, second to Pharaoh. But once they had eaten through all of that grain, and I don't know how long it took them to do that, maybe six months or a year, I'm not sure. I don't know how much grain they had. There was a lot of people in their family. So, But anyway, two things became abundantly apparent. Number one, the famine wasn't about to end. They're now in the second to third year of the famine, and there's no uh, hope in sight, no rain clouds in sight, and uh, it's, it's getting bad. So, um, so they're all going to starve to death. Number two is that the whole family of Jacob would starve to death if he did not relent in his stubborn unwillingness to let his sons take Benjamin, his favorite youngest son, with them to return to Egypt in order to purchase more grain, more food. Now, why must Benjamin accompany his older brothers as they would return to Egypt? Well, it was because the Egyptian lord of the bread, <laughs> Joseph, had made it very clear that they would not be allowed to return to Egypt and see his face again and get more grain without him. He insisted they bring their youngest brother with them to prove that they were not spies. Remember, he accused them of being spies. And then, too, there was the matter of Simeon. Nobody ever seems to remember about poor Simeon, but he was in prison in Egypt. I don't know. Jacob was just not going to let Benjamin go, so I guess he was okay with letting Simeon just rot in prison forever. Anyway, Judah... Um, Remember how he had intervened? He became the spiritual leader of the family. Jacob certainly wasn't the father, as he should have been. And Reuben didn't prove to be much of a spiritual leader, did he? So Judah, the fourth son, took over. And he had spoken to his father on behalf of all the brothers. This was in chapter 43, verses 4 and 5. And he made it clear that they were all, the brothers were all united in their decision that they would not return to Egypt without Benjamin. If they did, it would be a suicide mission to their thinking. Now, it wouldn't have been because Joseph would never have killed them, but they didn't know that. And so they thought it would be a suicide mission, that they would either spend the rest of their lives in prison. This is if they went back to Egypt without Benjamin, okay? They would either be like Simeon, spend the rest of their lives in prison, or they would be hung as spies because it would prove that they had been spies, that they were liars, um, so for sure, too, then uh, uh, Simeon would not be released from his bondage, would he, if they didn't go back with Benjamin? 
Now, after possibly as much as a year since their return, their first return from Egypt, with their sacks loaded with grain, everyone could see that that uh, grain supply was getting um, very low and dangerously low. And therefore, it was imperative for their father, for Jacob, to stop procrastinating the inevitable. He was either going to have to let Benjamin go or what would be the alternative? Everybody would die. They would all starve to death, including all the you know grandchildren and, and all the wives. And everybody would die of starvation. It's amazing to me to, to um, think about how much honor back in those days and in that culture, and actually this continues in much of the world today, how much honor was given to the father. Do you know these boys are in their 40s and Benjamin is in his 30s? If you go ahead and look at the genealogy in a couple more chapters, we find out that when they did make their move, uh, which is shortly after this, to Egypt, do you know how many sons Benjamin has? Ten. He's, He's a father many times over by this point. He's not a little kid who has to get daddy's permission. You know, those boys could have... I call them boys, men, those men could have gone without their father's permission, couldn't they? They could have just taken Benjamin and, you know, he willingly could have gone with him to Egypt to get more food. What's more important? Their family's not starving to death. Dad's being really stubborn about all this. But they honored the, the father so much. It was a patriarchal society, and they would not go without his permission. You know, and this is before the, um, the law, 400 years before the law, honor your mother and your father. And they were, they were doing that. I thought about how um, we've kind of drifted from that. <laughs> I was thinking that when I was studying this about that program, remember, a lot of you will. Father knows best. Do you know if they tried to air that today, <laughs> they'd be accused of... Uh, no, not child abuse. The, the, the women would rise up and say, no, mothers know best. <laughs> it would not be politically correct anymore. Well, anyway, finally, Judah, Judah goes to his dad, and uh, he says, we won't go. We won't go get more food without Benjamin. And Jacob finally gives his permission for his beloved son, Benjamin, to go to Egypt, but only does it reluctantly because of the insurmountable pressure from the famine. And he did so by managing to put a measure of confidence in Judah's promise that he would, he would get his youngest beloved son back. Judah gave him his promise. He says, if something happens, I will be surety for him. So if the, if, uh, the lord of the bread, the vizier of Egypt, Joseph, decides to put Benjamin in prison, I'll, I'll take his place. And so with that promise, he reluctantly, Jacob, reluctantly said, this he said if it must be so do this that's in verse 11 of chapter 43 he was as we've seen over and over again an extremely passive father an extremely passive leader and sadly he was here more influenced by fear than faith you know if it must be so okay take him and his, his carnal nature continues to show, you know, all his life he struggles with his old man and his new man. He's really still wrestling, isn't he? Um, but anyway, his carnal nature shows itself in, in uh, what he does next. He tries to sweeten the pot with a gift. Okay, you're going to go to Egypt, but take a gift 
(laughs) for this powerful man, this Egyptian vizier. Take some of Canaan's choicest products, such as balm, honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. That's in verse 11. Do you remember um, years earlier when Jacob was going to meet his brother, his twin brother Esau, for the first time in 20 years, and he was very fearful about it because last time Esau wanted to murder him? And uh, he had escaped from Laban with his family. All he has is women and children, you know, and some servants. And Esau's coming up with 400 soldiers. And what did he do then? He He sent forth gifts ahead, trying to sweeten the pot. You know, trying to do things in his own effort, wasn't he? And here we find, years later, he does exactly the same thing. He's putting his trust in what he can do, what he might do rather than trusting totally in, in God. Well, in addition to sending the gifts with his sons, they were also, of course, to take back the uh, grain money that had been found in their sacks, in their saddlebags. Remember that? They had paid for the grain, and then when they got back, they, found out, they all found out that the ba- their bags of grain money were in their saddlebags. And so they were to, supposed to, they were going to take that back, of course. And in addition to that, they were supposed to take more money to buy the next batch of grain. So I call it double money. So they're going to take gifts, and they're going to take double money. Jacob was hoping that his gifts with this double payment would help him accomplish three goals. Benjamin's first one, Benjamin's safe return back to him. Number two, more life-sustaining grain, which they badly needed. And number three, oh yeah, Simeon. <laughs> Simeon's freedom. Then, as Jacob is sending his sons off to Egypt, he makes an appeal. He finally remembers God, so he throws in God. He appeals to, this is in verse 14, he appeals to the mercy of God Almighty for the upcoming meeting with the man. He calls Joseph the man. Of course, he doesn't know it's Joseph. And uh, sadly, we find here that this is still the carnal Jacob. He is, you know, he first of all, he took care of material things. You know, that was his first focus, the gifts and the, and the double money and everything. Afterwards, then he takes a little bit of time, a concern for spiritual matters. But uh, his statement about God really sounds more like a wish than a prayer. Look at it in verse 14. It, he says, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother. Isn't that sad? He doesn't even call Simeon by his name. That's Simeon. That he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. That really sounds, it doesn't sound like a prayer. It sounds like a wish. And then he throws in these words at the end. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. I mean, that's more an expression of fatalism than faith. You know who he reminds me? You know, he said before, what did he say? If if it must be so, now do this. And now he says, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He reminds me of Eeyore. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, is that what you... <laughs> Winnie the Pooh, the, the blue donkey... Okay. (laughs) You can tell I have little grandchildren. Uh, So packed up with Jacob's uh, precious, his his gifts, his generous gifts, and the double money, and of course their youngest brother, 
the men, the brothers, they go back down to Egypt, and before long, they find themselves again in the presence of Egypt's number two man, still unrecognized as Joseph. And when Joseph saw them, that they had returned with his only full brother, Benjamin. Now think about it. He has not seen Benjamin since the boy was probably nine or ten years old. It's been a long time. This is his only full brother. The little boy who, when he was born, his, Joseph's mother died giving birth to him. And these guys were close once upon a time. And he sees Benjamin. Don't you know he just wants to run and grab him and hug him and kiss him and, and tell him who he is and have a reunion right there and then? But he doesn't. He restrains himself. And when he, said, he tells his household manager, his steward, now, this man becomes important. Joseph is a picture of Christ, right? That's what we're looking at, typology. This steward really becomes sort of a picture of the Holy Spirit. So he tells his household manager to prepare a meal. The men, his brothers, would dine with him, with Joseph, at noon in his house. He initiates the meal. He hosts the meal. Uh, he pays for the meal just think about that because we'll wrap it up at the end well hearing that they were soon to be personally escorted into the vizier's house made the brothers not happy afraid it tells us in verse 16 they were afraid why were they afraid to have a meal in the vizier's house vizier is a word for prime minister okay if you're new and you don't know what i'm talking about they thought that they would probably soon be joining Simeon in the prison that was located probably in the basement of Joseph's house because often prisons were in the homes of important political figures. We know that Potiphar had a dungeon in his basement. That's where Joseph went for all those years. They probably thought, the men, the brothers thought, that the returned grain money would be the excuse to incarcerate them. You know, because they would say, well, you took the money with you the first time you were here. You're returning it, but why did you steal it to begin with? And so they would, you know, Joseph would just use that as an excuse to throw them in prison. So what they do is they get the steward off to the side and they quickly explain to him how they had found the money in their sacks. We didn't steal it. Honest, we're really, really true men. We're good guys. We did not take it. And look, we're proving it to you because we brought it back. We're honest men. Um, and, they, you know, we brought it back because we want to do the right thing. Well, the steward then gives them very comforting words, like the comforter. He says to them, regarding their money explanation, and this is in verse 23, peace be to you, fear not. And those words signal a turning point in Joseph's involvement with his brothers. From here on, matters would now, with him, would now begin to progressively transition from a fearful experience to a family experience of peace. The steward told the brothers to not be afraid. Their grain, and this is important too, and we'll wrap this up at the end, 
But their grain had been paid for in full. It was on the house. And he even admitted that he had possession of, of the money, that he received it from his master, Joseph. And um, he indicated to them, as he's explaining things, that he, he had had their money, and he was really the one responsible for having put it back into their saddlebags. But he was very careful to give God the credit for giving the treasure back to them. He says in verse 23, Peace be to you, fear not your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then after he, he tells them all that, he disappears and comes back with who? Simeon. Now when he appeared with Simeon, and they saw him alive and well, that must have really helped to ease their fear, the, the fear of the other brothers. So they're getting more and more comfortable with the situation. Well, then he takes the 11 brothers into Joseph's house, and the steward extends to them the common courtesies of ancient hospitality, such as giving them water so that they could wash their dusty feet, and then he gives food for their animals. The brothers, we are told, uh, made ready the presents that they were going to give to Joseph. That's in the beginning of verse 25. You know, the almonds and the nuts and the balm and all that stuff. They made the presents ready so that they could present them to Joseph when he came into the room. And when he does join them, immediately, what do they do? They bow their, themselves down to the ground before him. Um, Again, you know, f completely fulfilling. Now, this time, they are completely fulfilling, well, almost, the second dream. Because it was the second dream that we were told 11 stars bowed down before Joseph. The first time, Benjamin wasn't with them when they bowed down before him. So that was really a fulfillment of the first dream about the sheaves because we were never told how many sheaves bowed down. It was just the sheaves bowed down. And now we have a fulfillment of his second dream as well because there were 11. Um, and they bow down. And Joseph obviously must have seen their gifts, but he doesn't make any comment about them. He, he, he's only concerned with their welfare. He asks about their welfare. And then he also asks about his father's status. He's very concerned about his father. Now, it's been a while since he's seen his brothers, and so he wants to know, and this is in verse 27, and I get a kick out of this, but uh, he wants to know if the old man, what chapter am I in? I'm all confused. 23, yeah, okay. <laughs> he says, is your father well the old man? So that's really, that's biblical to call an older man, like your dad, your grandpa, the old man. You know, we get offended when teenagers do that, the old man. <laughs> that's what Joseph asked about his father. He wants to know, is he still alive? It's been maybe six months, a year, I don't know, since he saw the brother. So is he okay? And when they answer uh, in the infirm affirmative, yes, he's in good health, then what do they do? They bow their heads and make obeisance to him again. Verse 28 oblivious they're completely oblivious to how they are actually fulfilling his dreams well things are going better than the brothers could have hoped for this is pretty smooth this is pretty good nothing was said about the returned money 
that they had found in their sacks. And that was a great relief. And the vizier, this is strange and it's really weird, but the vizier is very concerned about their father, the old man. Why would he be so concerned about a shepherd he never met, you know, an old shepherd over in Canaan? Why would he be so concerned about him? It was weird, wasn't it? You know, he's, he's the bigwig in Egypt. Um, but it was comforting, nonetheless, that he really, he must have a compassionate heart that he's so concerned about our father. And then when Joseph fixed his eyes on Benjamin, he asked, is this, this is verse 29, is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? Now, did he know the answer to that question? I know he hadn't seen him in maybe 23 years, but I'm sure there were features about Benjamin that he recognized And he knew, yes, this is my younger brother. And I am sure he just wanted to, like I said earlier, he wanted to grab him and hug him and reveal to him who he was. And he's so full. uh, It's not time for him to reveal his identity because he wants to make sure his brothers have repented of what they did to him. So he greets instead, he greets Benjamin with a very warm blessing. He says to him, God be gracious unto thee, my son. Now, that was really nice and kind, and I'm sure the brothers were just thinking, this is really a nice man, you know, that he cares so much about our father and now this younger brother. And uh, they must have felt even more comfortable with the situation. But it was probably all Joseph could do to get that blessing out of his lips because he is so full of emotion. Can you imagine if you hadn't seen a brother or a sister in that long a time? It'd be like a resurrection from the dead. He never thought he'd see him again. And there he was right in front of him, and he just was so full that he had to retreat as quickly as he could from the room. And where did he go? It tells us he went to his private chambers. And what did he do in his private chambers? He wept profusely. Not because he was so too proud, too macho to weep in front of other men, but because he was still, you know, he didn't want to reveal his identity. It takes a real man to weep in front of other men. Real men aren't afraid of crying. Jesus wept, didn't he? But he goes to his private chambers, and uh, he still want, He needs to have proof, as I said, of his brother's repentance. So he, he is in there a while. I'm sure they thought, where did he go? (laughs) But he finally restrains his emotions and he washes his face and he returns to the room. And as soon as he comes back to the room, he gives the command, set on bread. You see that? Verse 31. If you have King James, I don't know what your other versions say, but I like that. I'm going to say that at Thanksgiving this week. Okay, everybody, set on bread. (laughs) Look at grandma like, I know. (laughs) Yeah, they might sit on the bread. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Serve the food, serve the food. Uh, and he ate, Joseph, we are told, ate at a separate table. There are three, three tables in this banquet hall. He's at one, and he probably has his cupbearer, you know, his butler, his baker, and a candlestick maker around him, so somebody tastes the food and the wine before he eats it. Uh, but he's at a separate table because of his exalted position. And then the Egyptians in attendance, who would include his interpreter. Remember, he is not speaking Hebrew. That would give him away. 
(laughs) He's speaking Egyptian and he has an interpreter mediating for him. And he also has probably bodyguards and um, other servants that would serve the food. They're all there. They They sit at a separate table because they will not mingle with shepherds. Remember, I told you that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So the the Egyptians are at a separate table, a second table. And then there's a third table in the room, and it's for the guests of honor. It's for Joseph's brothers. And they it says they marvel to find that they are seated. I don't know if they had a little, um, what do you call those? Name? Place cards. <laughs> place cards at their seats or something but they were seated in their birth order and they marveled at that now that's 11 brothers remember how we talked about the fact that they were all born within seven years of each other so it's not like one is really really old looking and you know it that would be very difficult I wouldn't even dare to do it you know in one row here I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole <laughs> But somehow they're in the proper, you know, Reuben all the way down to Benjamin. And uh, they therefore think that Joseph has some kind of really special gifts. Later on, he kind of claims that he uh, participated in divination. It was part of his disguise. He didn't because that's an occultic practice. But um, they think, wow, this guy is really smart. Do you know what the statistics, and I can hardly believe this, but this is what I read. The statistics of placing those 11 brothers in their proper birth order is one in 40 billion. That seems like too much to me, but I'm not a mathematician or a statistician. Well, something, so that was unusual. Another unusual thing about this banquet is that every portion of food that was served to Benjamin was five times greater than the food that was served to the other brothers. Okay, Benjamin, you want some mashed potatoes? Here they are. One, two, three, four, five. Reuben? I mean, that is, um, that's interesting, isn't it? What do you think Joseph was testing right there? He was testing to see if the brothers were jealous of Benjamin for the elite treatment that he was getting, not only from his father. You know, he was, they, they all knew he was the father's beloved now that Joseph was gone. And they didn't seem to have any envy about that. They openly talked about it. And now... They show no envy for him getting this preferential treatment. I think it's interesting um, to compare. Do you know that the, well, the the next thing that Moses recorded for us is that uh, they drank and were merry with him during this meal. When, this is the comparison I want to make. When was the last time these brothers had a meal in Joseph's presence? Hmm. Remember when they had just cast him into the pit where they were going to let him starve to death while they sat down and ate bread. Hmm, what a comparison. Now they have been the ones almost starving to death because of the famine and they're coming to him and he sets out this fantastic banquet for them. What a contrast. 
isn't it? Well, when the noon meal ended, Joseph instructed his steward to then provide the Hebrew brothers, his Hebrew brothers, well, the steward is in on this, um, with as many supplies as they can load to take back with them to Canaan. Now, not, this is not just the grain, the new grain that they have purchased with the you know extra money that they brought, but this is like snacks to eat along the way on their trip back. So load them up with all kinds of extra supplies. Um, and then he privately told his steward to do what he had done on the first trip, put back the money. The double money. Put back the money they paid for the first load of grain and put back the money that they have just paid for this second load. Put it all back. Hide it in their sacks. And then he tells him to also hide a special silver cup of his, of Joseph's, that he pretended he had used for divination. And um, we'll you get a special appendix in your email lesson that talks about that, okay? Because Joseph would not have participated in an occultic practice like that, but this was part of his pretense to be Egyptian, okay? And in the position that he was in. But he tells his steward, hide the silver cup in whose saddlebag? Benjamin's. And put it right at the mouth of the bag so when the bag was opened up, there it would be, bright and shiny. And uh, what is he doing? Well, he's setting the stage for the final exam of his brothers, which was going to test their loyalty and their love for one another. That was a test that they had miserably failed 23 years earlier with him. So the men departed, you know, everything got loaded up on their donkeys, and they took off early the next morning, and they were barely out of the city when Joseph ordered his steward to pursue after them and charge them with the theft of his special silver cup. And the steward, this is in chapter 44, verse 4, he was to ask them why they had rewarded evil for good. Joseph had been very good to them. Why did they reward his goodness with evil? Um, and now, had they? No, not this time around. But they had earlier, hadn't they? That's exactly what they had done two decades earlier with Joseph. He had come to them. Remember, they were far from their father. They had gone back to Shechem where they had murdered all the men of that city. They shouldn't have been there because that was a dangerous place for them to be. Everyone else hated them, but they were back there. And they were out of Hebron, where the father lived, which means fellowship. So they were out of fellowship, away from the father. The father sent his beloved son. It's all a picture of Jesus, isn't it? Sent his beloved son to go after them, to seek them, and say, you know, basically return to the father. And uh, he even went the extra mile, so to speak, because when he got to Shechem, he found out that they weren't there, and he went to Dothan to find them. So he, you know... He was obeying his father. He was coming in goodness. He obeyed his father. He went the extra mile. He, and, and he arrives and they reward. And it was a dangerous journey for him too. And how do they reward his good? With evil. They grab him, rob him, of, you know, strip him of his robe, uh, throw him in a pit, and then eventually sell him the price of a slave. All that is such a perfect picture of the Lord. 
Anyway, so the brother's response to the steward's theft accusation was way too confident. Now, they've been accused of two things, being spies and now being thieves. They're innocent of both, aren't they? But not really. <laughs> not really. Because um, if you look back at their history, they were, they were very much sinners. All these guys were sinners. Except Benjamin. Except he was also, also a sinner. Because we're all sinners, aren't we? All right. They had already proven... So now, you know, they're accused of being thieves. So in their minds, they're thinking, no, we've proven that we're not like common thieves. We would never steal silver or gold from the Lord of Egypt. Why would we be that dumb? Plus, we're not, we're not, that, you know, they're kind of proud here. We would never do that. And we proved it because we brought back the grain money that we found in our sacks from the first trip here. And they're so sure of the fact that none of them would have done this, none of them would have stolen this silver cup, that they overcompensated with a vow that was really pretty dumb. <laughs> it's a, they make a vow of a death sentence on the one in whose sack contained the cup. Does this remind you of something else that had happened earlier in their history? When they were little boys and their daddy had done the same dumb thing? When Laban, Remember when Jacob finally got away from Laban? left Haran when Laban was out in the shepherd field and they snuck away, he with his wives and children. And Laban pursued them and he comes and he says, somebody, you have stolen my gods, his little idols. And Jacob made the same dumb vow. No, we didn't. We, didn't. we wouldn't do that. If, in the one whose tent you find it uh, deserves to die. And who was sitting on it? <laughs> his beloved wife, Rachel. So what comes around goes around, right? Here the boys are doing the same thing. They make this vow, you know, oh, we don't have it. And if you find it, the one that you find it in, he's going to, you know, you can kill him. And if that statement hadn't proved sufficient of, you know, it wasn't sufficient enough to prove their innocence to the steward, they go even further and they say that if the cup is found in somebody's uh, sack, then they would all, not only would that person, that brother be killed, but all of them would then willingly become the slaves of the vizier, will be slaves forever in Egypt. Well, the good news about their statement is that they really have trust in one another, don't they? They do. I mean, this shows mutual. They, they really believe in each other. No, not, not, even Simeon wouldn't do that. He don't want to go back to prison. <laughs> uh, but nobody, so they really believe in one another. But the bad news is that the silver cup was in one of their bags. And it was in Benjamin's sack along with money. The money was in all of their bags. So they're really going to look guilty, aren't they? Now, the steward knows this. So when he hears them make this vow, he quickly he intervenes and modifies this self-imposed sentence of doom that they made for themselves. He says instead, he says, no, 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 that's too extreme. Here's what we'll do. If I find the silver cup, in somebody's bag that person will not die but will become a slave forever to my lord and the rest of you will be free to return to your father in canaan why did the brothers need to remain free they needed to be free so that they could make a choice of either returning to their father without benjamin 
uh-oh, or going with Benjamin back to Joseph and facing the consequences with him. They had to have freedom to make that choice, didn't they? Well, following the steward's amendment to their vow, then they each hastily, and they took the saddlebags off their donkeys, and they put them on the ground, and they opened up their sacks for inspection. This is like, you know, going to the airport and having the TSA agents look through your bags. And the steward searched through each one from oldest to youngest. That guy had a pretty good memory. <laughs> he remembered how they were seated at the banquet hall. So he starts with Reuben and he, op- well, you know, he opens up his bag and he would have seen, and he goes to Simeon and Levi, all, Judah, all the way down. He would have seen in their bags, what? The money bags, the double money for all the grain. He would have seen that in every one of their bags, but he didn't say a word about it. Now that would have been strange. I'm sure the brothers thought, well, that's really strange. But he had told us on the first trip that he's the one that put it in there and that, you know, basically it was on the house. So I guess it's on the house again. He's not saying a word. And so then they start to relax because they go all the way down to the 10th brother and it's only Benjamin remains. And they all think, well, we're going to be fine with Benjamin. He's a nice guy. There's no way he would steal that cup. But what happens as soon as he opens up Benjamin's sack there it is right at the top shining brightly when the sun hit it (laughs) and their whole world came crashing down on them it tells us that all of them verse 13 all of them rent their clothes what a waste of clothes that's what they would do in grief you know they just tore open their shirts and uh, they were uh, utterly devastated How could this be? Benjamin, what's the matter with you? (laughs) And now came the big, big, big question. Would they unite in in the adversity that their their father's favorite son now faced? Would they unite with him? Or would they abandon him? If they envied him, or hated him like they had with Joseph, they could renounce him as a thief and desert him right here and just hightail it out of there and get back to Canaan. But these were changed men. They're not the same that they had been when they sold Joseph as a slave and then deceived their broken-hearted father into thinking that he had been devoured by a wild beast. These are not the same men. Can we be new creatures in Christ? <laughs> yes, we can. Praise the Lord for that. So every one of them, every single one of them decided that they would return to the city with Benjamin. They were not going to go back to face their father with the heartbreaking news that his other favorite son was no more. They would not go through that again. So some, you know, a lot of this is their love for the father, isn't it? Not so much their love for Benjamin, although they don't envy him and hate him. But mostly this is all about their love for the father. 
So they all go back with the steward to the Egyptian royal city. And uh, when, they, when they're brought in front of Joseph, of course, not knowing who it is, again, what do they do? <laughs> they fall on the ground before him. And for the very first time, a different Hebrew word is used for their prostration. It's not the same word that's been used repeatedly, to, which speaks of um, a reverential bowing, you know, you're obligated to do it. It's a, it's a completely different Hebrew word, which really tells us that um, they threw themselves down before him in prostration and absolute dependence on his mercy. Their self-confidence of a few verses ago, you know, when they say, oh, well, the one you find it in can die and we'll be slaves. All that self-confidence that we would never do that, that's gone. It's dissipated. It's disappeared, hasn't it? They're just casting themselves completely on his mercy. And then Joseph asks them, he says, uh, what deed is this that ye have done? So the moment of truth had arrived. How would his brothers respond? Would they try to defend themselves? Would they say, this is all a setup? We know it is. We proved we're not thieves the first time around. We brought back the money. Somebody's put this in it. Why don't you look at your steward? He probably did it. <laughs> you know, would they try to defend themselves and say they're all innocent? Would they let Benjamin take all the guilt on his own and basically throw him to the wolves? How were they going to answer this question? Well, who takes the lead once again? Number four, the man whose name means praise, Judah, takes the lead and surprisingly, we find that he gives no defense whatsoever to Joseph for what has happened. He doesn't even try to explain the cup's presence in his younger brother's sack. You see, he's gained an appreciation for Joseph. He's come to understand this man has integrity, this leader of Egypt. He's a nice guy. He's kind. And so he decides that he would seek his mercy not his justice. Isn't that what we all want? <laughs> Mercy, not justice. And uh, as I said, Joseph pretended to have used divination to determine the whereabouts of his cup. But Judah, he attributes the discovery of the cup to God. He confesses that it is payback time for their past iniquity. Here's what he says in verse 16. He says to Joseph, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. And then he says, behold, we are my Lord's servants. In other words, we are your slaves. Both we and he also, Benjamin, with whom the cup is found. In his statement, he includes th uh, three major subjects. Number one, he confesses guilt on behalf of himself and all the brothers, including Benjamin. I think he thinks Benjamin really did take the cup because he says, he, you know, he's guilty too. We're guilty of iniquity that God knows about. So he confesses guilt uh, on behalf of all 11 brothers. Secondly, he acknowledges that their predicament was God's judgment. God's judgment. They're reaping what they had sown for some past iniquity. 
Now, he doesn't say what that iniquity was, does he? But who knows what he's talking about? Joseph knows exactly what he's talking about. Third, Judah's statement um, includes the offer of himself and his brothers as slaves. Now, he didn't know, and he's speaking on behalf of the brothers. None of them protest. They're all in agreement here. But little did Judah or any of his brothers realize it, but by casting their lot with Benjamin, they had turned the tide. <laughs> well, still protecting his identity and the, his knowledge of that past iniquity that Judah is speaking about, Joseph said, no, 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 I, I will have nothing to do with keeping all of you as my slaves. I'm merely concerned with making matters right concerning the one who took my silver cup. Um, and so what he's doing now is he's giving the final phase of the final exam. And he gives the brothers one more opportunity to return in peace to their, their father. He says, only the thief will remain as my slave. So he's very nice. He's not even going to kill the thief. He's just going to let him be his slave forever. So the rest of you, however, are free to go back to your father in Canaan. See, he's testing them one more time. Um, and then, well, where, let's see, where am I? Well, you're the thief, okay. Uh, he, he takes the role of the spiritual leader. The spiritual leader should have been his father, Jacob, right? He should have been there with them, but he isn't. And then it should have been Reuben, but he, he's not. So Judah is the spiritual leader of the family. And uh, he then gives us, he goes on to speak. He asks, this is in verse 18. He asks Joseph if he can have a private word with him. So they, they go off to the side with the interpreter, of course, and he wants to speak to him privately. And then he proceeds to give what is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. That's a trivia question. Who gave the longest speech in Genesis? Judah. And this is when Judah begins to roar as a lion. Now, I'm not going to go over all the details. Let me just read the speech to you, okay? Uh, starting in verse 18, where it says, Then Judah came near unto him, that would be Joseph, and said, O my Lord, let, my, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not thine anger burn against thy servant. He's referring to himself as the servant. For thou art even as Pharaoh. I know you have, you know, as much power as Pharaoh. And then he begins his speech. My Lord asked his servants, saying, have ye a father or a brother? He's talking about the first visit to Egypt when Joseph had said, have you got a father? Have you got a, another brother? And we said unto my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. That's why we think of Benjamin as a little guy, you know. Well, sure, really, it's not. He was in his 30s. <laughs> and then he goes on and said, and his brother is dead. You know what that tells us? Judah believed that Joseph was dead by now. All the brothers believed that he was dead by now. And so they, he says, and he alone, meaning Benjamin, is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. And thou saidest unto thy servants, bring him down unto me, that I might set, may set my eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, 
the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. This is all, he's repeating what had happened on their first visit when, ben, uh, when Joseph said, bring your brother. And they said, we can't. If we bring him, our father will die. Verse 23, and thou saidest unto thy servants, except your youngest brother come down with you, ye shall see my face no more. And it came to pass when we came unto thy servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Now he's going to tell him what happened when they returned to their father. They told him everything that had happened. And our father said, go again. Now time has passed. They ran out of grain. And verse 25 is when their father said, go back and buy us a little food. And we said to their father, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother be with us, then will we go down? For we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. This is just a lot of repeat, but he's telling him, our father said, go back to Egypt. We said, we can't go unless we take Benjamin. Get it? All right, verse 27. And thy servant, my father, said unto us, ye know that my wife bare me two sons. That's kind of cruel, you know, my wife. He had, what about their mother? They're mothers, I should say. But he makes it sound like he only had one wife and he only had two sons. That guy really had a problem with favoritism. Verse 28, and one went out from me. There he's speaking about Joseph. And I said, surely he is torn in pieces and I saw him not since. Joseph is now learning what his father thought about the whole episode. For the first time, he's hearing that his father thought he had been torn in pieces and was not, you know, that he was dead. And uh, this is still Jacob talking. And if you take this also, meaning if you take Benjamin from me and mischief befall him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. If something happens to Benjamin, I'll die. Verse 30. Now, therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us. In other words, Judah is saying, now, if I go back home again and Benjamin isn't with us, uh, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servants shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. He's, he's uh, appealing to Joseph's mercy. What he's really doing is interceding on behalf of his father. The word father is used in this speech 14 times. So he's really, he loves the father, doesn't he? Even though the father doesn't love him as much as he loves Benjamin, Jacob loves the father. And he's saying, please, please don't do this because my father will die without his, you know, if he loses his second beloved son. And then this is when he really begins to roar. Look at verse 32. For thy servant, now he's telling him what he, had done, what he had said to his father. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, if I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Remember when he had done this? He said, Dad, I will bring him back, and if I can't bring him back, I will take his place in prison. Or if he's going to be put to death, I will be put to death. You hear him roaring? Mm-hmm. Then he goes on in verse 33. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant, in other words, me, abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. 
<clears throat> Judah here is definitely showing a tremendous transformation. This is the man who hatched the whole idea about selling Joseph as a slave. This is the man who raised two sons so evil the Lord slew them. This is the man who had a relationship with his own daughter-in-law. Didn't know she was, but with a har- thought she was a harlot. This is the man who, what else did he do? Married a Canaanite. I mean, he was just a bad dude all along. He is a new person. I think he's, he's had a big change in his life um, because now he is, there is no evidence of any self-interest in his speech. There's no evidence of jealousy about his father's favoritism. He accepts his father's love preference for Benjamin and also his dead son. And that's a huge indication of spiritual maturity, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, remember, uh, I already said that. Okay. Here's here's what the case is. Benjamin would, I mean, uh, Judah. Judah would rather be a slave in Egypt for the rest of his life than be free back in Canaan and watch helplessly as his father's heart broke into pieces. He was putting himself last, wasn't he? And the first shall be last. Is that right? No, the last shall be first. The last shall be first. <laughs> and uh, this, is, you know, this is why Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Here it is right here. This is, he's, he's revealing self-sacrificial love because he is willing to give up everything so that his father, who might never love him as he loved Benjamin, would not again grieve as he had over Joseph. And in his willingness to lose his life, Judah found it. You know, that's how you find your life when you're willing to lose it. Have a cause. A good, there is a good cause. Glorifying the Lord is the best cause there is. Lose your life in him and you find it. He serves as the first human example of substitutionary sacrifice in the scripture. His self-sacrificial love for the sake of family pictures the Lord's self-sacrificial love for the sake of the entire world. He was demonstrating, Judah was demonstrating true repentance here. He was demonstrating a new heart. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And these are exactly the signs Joseph had been looking for right and here they are and uh, so when his private conversation with Judah is ended again Joseph is just full to overflowing with what he has just heard and uh, he's going he's ready he is ready to reveal himself to Judah and all the other brothers but before he does that because that's going to be a family matter. He dismisses every Egyptian out of the room, including his interpreter. Hmm, that's strange. Brothers must think, how's he going to talk to us? (laughs) So as soon as the door closes and that last Egyptian is out of the room, he, he just cannot, he's, he was having such trouble restraining his emotions. He can't restrain them anymore. 
And he just bursts out in Hebrew, perfect Hebrew, <laughs> which must shock them, at, you know, when they heard the first word out of his lip. But I think, I'm not sure what he did, but when he said to them, uh, I am Joseph, I think he took off the black wig. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just imagining. <laughs> but whatever he did, he revealed himself to them uh, with the words, I am Joseph. I wish I could say it in Hebrew. <laughs> and the brothers said, oh, that's wonderful. Yippee. <laughs> and they ran to him and hugged him. Is that what happened? Oh, no. <laughs> the minute he said that, we're told they're terrified. Why? This is Joseph? Surely this is our, the end, our end. He's, not only does he have every human right to seek vengeance on them for what they had done to him, but he's got the power and authority to do it. And so they're probably expecting him to call back the Egyptians and the executioner, you know. They are absolutely shaking in their boots. And so what does he do? Instead of calling for the executioners, he speaks to them these words. Verse 4, chapter 45. Come near to me, I pray you. He doesn't say, come here. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden with your guilt of what you did to me. Come near to me. I, I said it lovingly, compassionately, with forgiveness. Can you imagine? This man has such a heart. And when they did, trepidly, in great trepidation, they ventured near him. He goes on and he says to them, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. That's interesting. You know, he's forgiving them. He's forgiving them. But forgiveness does not minimize sin. All right? He's calling what they did sin. They've already acknowledged it as sin, too. Remember when they were in prison? They said, we are verily guilty. And then they, Judah had just said uh, iniquity. God has found out our iniquity. So they recognize the sin, and he recognizes their sin. Um, so forgiveness doesn't seek to minimize their sin. It's not like, oh, well, you know, I'll just wink at it. No big deal. But it does seek to neutralize sin. Forgiveness neutralizes the sin against you. So then he goes on, he says, uh, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, he's giving them words of comfort and encouragement. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. Don't live the rest of your lives with guilt. You might have sold me, but God did send me before you to preserve life and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Without Joseph, they'd all die, wouldn't they? So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. 
That is, that is just beautiful. He, he's, saying, he's giving them these words of hope and encouragement and saying, in effect, you may have sold me, but God sent me. This is the sovereignty of God right here, isn't it? How he works all things together for good, even uses men's evil. You might have sold me, but God sent me. He had a purpose in all of this, and you have not destroyed his purpose. You tried to. You thought you were going to, but you didn't. You actually were part of it. You helped him work it out. Your purpose might have been to destroy, but God's purpose was to deliver with a great deliverance. Now, who else, who else could have said this? Jesus, right? Exactly. Well, after more words then spoken to them about his plans for them to live with him in Egypt. Isn't our Lord preparing for us a place to live with him? Uh, where he could then provide for them. And their families. He talks about that in verses 9 to 13. Then he does what he wanted to do for hours and days. He goes to Benjamin. And uh, it's quite possible, I got to thinking about this, that Benjamin had just heard for the very first time in his life what his brothers had done to Joseph. Can you imagine? He just heard that they had sold him. And they had lied to their father about this. He's just hearing this for the very first time, I believe. They kept it a secret from him all those years. And he's probably thinking, oh boy, wait till daddy hears this. <laughs> but so anyway, there's Benjamin and Joseph goes over to him. Of course, he had not been involved in the iniquity against him. So he's the first one he goes to. And what does he do? His emotions just spill all over. He grabs his younger brother and he, he hugs him and he falls on his neck and it tells us he kisses him and Benjamin returns all the kisses and the crying and this goes on and I'm sure everybody in Pharaoh's household heard all this sobbing going on and thinking, what is happening in that room? But he doesn't just confine his love and forgiveness to, I mean, not forgiveness, but uh, love to Benjamin. He goes to each and every one of the other brothers, every single one of them. And he does the same thing. He kisses all of his other ten brothers and weeps and weeps. He forgave them freely and he reconciled them to himself. And then it says that they talked with him, verse 15. What do you think they talked about? I think they talked about the father. Yes, right. You know, one day in the divinely planned parallel to this true, marvelous story of Joseph's emotional reunion with his brothers, there's going to be another scene like it, except exceedingly more wonderful and emotional. And that scene will involve the fulfiller of all Joseph typified, the spiritual savior, the spiritual deliverer of Israel and the entire world, the true source of the real bread of life, the one sent by the father to beseech his brothers who had wandered far from him and the place of fellowship to return home. The Lord Jesus, did he not willingly go the great distance, the extra mile to bring his father's message to his wandering children? And what was his reward? Evil for good. His reward was their hatred 
They despised and envied him because of the father's favor on him. They mocked him for his revelation, his divine revelation. One of his Jewish brothers, Judas, who has the same name in Hebrew as Judah, betrayed him for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was thrown into the pit of death without a righteous cause by his own brothers in the flesh. And since then, the Lord's kinsmen have been in a time of great spiritual famine, haven't they? Still going on to this day. It will not end until a tribulation so intense like the famine, that it will bring them to repentance and readiness for the revelation of Christ and at long last reconciliation with him. One yet future day when Israel sees Jesus the second time. Remember, it was the brother's second visit to see Joseph. When Israel sees Jesus the second time, he will reveal himself. And all it will take I got to thinking about it, are the words like he spoke to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And Israel's blinded eyes will finally be opened as she looks upon him who she pierced and mourns. She will be terrified at first in genuine repentance. And then the descendants of Israel's patriarchs will bow the knee before him and at last the spiritual famine will end and the second dream will be fully fulfilled because remember the second dream is not just the 11 stars but it's the sun and the moon and that together they represent the whole nation of Israel Israel will have come to the one who is the bread of life, the true manna from heaven, the real Zaphnath Paneah, savior of the world. And there will be reconciliation and forgiveness between the Lord Jesus and his brethren, the Jews. Okay? Now, if you have to go, go. But this is what I wanted to close with. I purposely didn't give you Joseph, a type of Christ, the last... um, Well, not the last. There'll be another page, I think, next week. But, I mean, two weeks from now. But I didn't give this to you today because I didn't want you to take a sneak look at it while I was talking. I want to save it for the gravy. (laughs) Uh, Okay, who initiated and hosted that undeserved feast for the brothers? Joseph. He initiated it, and he hosted it, and it was in his house, wasn't it? He bore its cost. And he commissioned his steward to bring his brothers to it. The event was all of Joseph's grace, wasn't it? You know, Jesus will one day host an undeserved feast for all his brothers in his house. Revelation 19, the marriage feast of the Lamb. He bore the cost for that yet future feast with his own shed blood. And his life. His steward, the Holy Spirit, has been commissioned by him to bring Christ's family to that feast, which is entirely of his grace. Joseph's brothers 
attempted to buy the life-saving grain from Joseph. Do you know the word buy occurs 11 times in this whole narrative? One for each brother. They tried to buy the bread of life. That is the way of the natural man, isn't it? They believe that they can buy, they can earn, merit their own salvation. But it is an undeserved gift of God, as Joseph demonstrated when he returned their money. I don't want your money. He kept giving it back to them, didn't he? He never took one penny from them. He even didn't pay any attention to the gifts uh, because he freely provided the bread of life for them. And he then invited them to live in the best land with him and provide for them forever. Well, the brothers also like the natural man who denies that he is dead in his sins and trespasses. They attempted to vindicate themselves before Joseph when he first accused them of things, you know, being spies. Um, He was sending forth arrows of conviction. You know, you guys are sinners. Well, they didn't want to admit that. And he even spoke roughly to them and accused them of of later being thieves too. But they self-righteously boasted, just like the natural man, and they said, we're true men. They said that a bunch of times. We're true men. And then you know what else they would talk about? Our father. Remember the Pharisees? They were so proud. They were self-righteous. And they always talked about, well, we're descendants of Abraham. That's what these guys were doing. We're descendants of of Jacob, Isaac and Abraham. Uh, But Joseph, just like Jesus, was attempting to lead his brothers to conviction so that they would realize they're not really true men. They're not (laughs) innocent. And so they would repent and be saved. Well, Joseph continued to deal with his brothers when he threw them in prison for three days. Um, By putting them in prison, he gave them, it was really an act of grace on his part. Because it was in prison that they finally came to recognize, they had time to think about things, and they realized that they were verily guilty. Just like the giving of the law was an act of grace because it's the law that, helps man see that he can't ever meet the law. He can't ever fulfill the law, right? That he's in bondage, in prison, to his own sins. And um, that's where they they express to one another that their distress was deserved. Well, Judah then, on behalf of all the brothers, gave up any attempt to clear themselves of their guiltiness. He, you know, finally they're, they're in this process of awakening. He realizes that instead of being true men, they are guilty. He talks about their iniquity, which God knew about all along. Well, then once a sinner acknowledges before the Lord that he is indeed a sinner, that he has committed iniquity and is verily guilty, it's then that Christ is ready to reveal himself to that sinner. And that's exactly what Joseph did following Judah's confession. But before revealing himself to his brothers, what did Joseph do? He dismissed every man to go out from him. It says in chapter 45, verse 1, every man to go out from him. 
that included his interpreter. This is how it is when Christ reveals himself to the sinner who has confessed his sins before him. You see, there is no need for any type of mediator between the sinner and Jesus. So go out, all you priests and you religionists and any other would-be go-between interferer. The needy sinner needs only to go directly to Jesus, right? Well, uh, Joseph treated his brothers after that with amazing grace. When he said, come near to me, he told them not to be grieved with themselves or angry with themselves because God had sent him before them to preserve their lives. He kissed them. He wept joyfully with each of them. And all distance was removed on his part. There is no distance between us and our Savior. We can sit on his lap and call him Daddy, Abba father he had taken the initiative in all of this hadn't he we love him because what he first loved us and his closing statement in this lesson to his brothers was god has sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance that is certainly a statement that could rightly be given by the lord jesus christ so You see how the gospel was actually in this whole story. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it amazing? Amazing grace. Father, thank you for the time together. Sorry I went along again, but it was worth it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Joseph revealing to us Jesus. But thank you so much for Jesus. We look forward to that day when we will see him face to face. Oh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray everyone will truly be thankful, not only this time of year for you and salvation and all the blessings you have just abundantly bestowed upon us, but that we will be thankful each and every day of our lives. I ask that you go with each woman, help her to have a wonderful holiday, and may we come back together for the conclusion of this study, hopefully, um, in two weeks. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.